The text for the sermon this afternoon is from Daniel 8, as we continue the reading from Daniel 8, where we left off, and we continue starting in verse 15, reading through to the end of the chapter. Daniel 8, verses 15 through 27. Once again, this is the word of the Lord. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power." And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great." Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision And did not understand it. So far, the reading of God's word. May God bless that reading. And may he bless the proclamation of his word this afternoon. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. In a way, Daniel 8 is the third retelling of many of the same events that were foretold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. And Daniel's first vision in chapter 7. Nebuchadnezzar's vision gave us the big picture. The sequence of empires that would lead to the formation of the fifth empire. The glorious empire, the kingdom of God. Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7 covered those same events. But from, from a perspective that was more focused on God's people foretelling the suffering that would come upon God's people during the reign of the fourth beast, the Roman Empire. But this vision of Daniel 8 puts the focus on one part of the story of these four empires. It's like what we have here is a a camera that's zooming in on one part of the story. You get the wide-angle shot, the panorama, And that becomes the close-up or the macro view. The story begins in the same place, the defeat of Babylon by the Persian Empire. 
The lopsided bear, you may remember the lopsided bear from chapter 7. And that lopsided bear has been transformed into a ram with one horn higher than the other. And that's the empire of the Medes and the Persians. And the winged leopard of chapter 7 has become a male goat with a single horn between its eyes. And this male goat is racing east to strike that ram and it breaks its horns and tramples it. Now this is the Greek empire of Alexander the Great, that conspicuous horn. But then at the apex of his power, at its highest point, Alexander dies. And so that conspicuous horn, that powerful symbol is broken and it's replaced by four other horns. And these four other horns are the successors of Alexander the Great and they were four generals. And each one of these generals took control over a quarter of the Greek Empire. But here we see the focus of the vision narrowing, becoming even more narrow, to a little horn that's growing out of one of these four original horns. And this horn, this little horn, grows exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and towards the glorious land. And so for God's purposes, for the purposes of his revelation, and even for us today as God's people, this horn is really the important one. And this horn, in the grander scheme of things, this horn was just a little horn. And it had come out of one of the four horns that were themselves smaller and less important than that first great horn the horn of Alexander the Great. And so, on the world stage, in terms of the big picture of world history, this little horn is really a non-entity. It's like a blip on the radar. But in terms of the history of redemption, the history of God's dealings with his people, his work in history, throughout history, That little horn is vitally important. It's central to our history as God's people. And that means that it's actually central to world history. Who is that little horn? Well, that little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes, the son of Antiochus the Great, the king of the Seleucid Empire. That was one of the four kingdoms that had been the Greek Empire between 175 and 164 B.C. Now the title Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, it means God made manifest, an appearance of God, an epiphany. And the fact that Antiochus IV, which is who he was, took this title for himself, I am Epiphanes, it actually says a lot about him. But his nickname He had a nickname that was given to him by his enemies. That actually says a lot more about him because it shows how other people saw him from a very different perspective. They called him not Antiochus Epiphanes, God made manifest, but they called him Antiochus Epimenes, Antiochus the madman. And so Antiochus IV, he was a tyrant. And he used tyranny as a tactic to promote unity within his kingdom. 
What he did was to force his subjects to use and adopt the Greek culture and language and even Greek religious practices. And his reign over the land of Palestine, which is the glorious land in this vision and in future visions, his reign was a nightmare for them. He banned circumcision, which was the sign of the covenant. He appointed his own chosen man as the high priest. He removed the rightful high priest from his position. And then after doing that, he invaded Egypt. And while he was in Egypt... He had left the glorious land to go to Egypt. While he was there, there were rumors of his death that began to arise in Jerusalem. It was an ancient version of fake news. And that led to a celebration of the faithful, as you can imagine. Antiochus, Epimenes, the madman, he's dead. But he wasn't. But in his absence, they tried to reinstate the rightful high priest, but then... Surprise, surprise, Antiochus returned, and he was not happy. So what he did was to end the sacrificial system in Jerusalem, in the temple of God. He defiled the temple, and he defiled its altar by sacrificing a pig on the altar and placing an object sacred to Zeus in the most holy place. He burned copies of the scriptures, Over the period of of three days, he massacred 40,000 Jews. And finally, he appointed Menelaus, who was a traitor, as his high priest. It's a story that's recounted in the first book of the Maccabees. And we'll read from the first chapter of that book a little later. But as Daniel's vision had foretold, for 2,300 evenings and mornings... The evening and morning sacrifices for three years, the regular burnt offering was stopped, and the temple service, which was central to the religious life of the Jews, came to a halt. And all of this sacrilege, all of this oppression, all of this persecution led to a rebellion by the Jews who had remained faithful. After three years, the Seleucid armies were finally finally driven out of Judah. In the year 164 before Christ, the temple was cleansed and it was rededicated to the Lord. That was the year of Antiochus' death. And we know today the celebration of Hanukkah, which Jews celebrate every year. And it's a celebration of that cleansing and consecration of the temple. And when we read the New Testament, when we know the story of what happened in Jerusalem before the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, we could understand a little better what it was that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were all about. What was the context of their opposition to the Messiah? So brothers and sisters, that in in very broad strokes and very, very briefly is the historical fulfillment of Daniel's vision. When events that were in the distant future for him were revealed to him in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. But the vision doesn't just reveal earthly, outward, political events. Events that were to happen in the distant future. It also reveals what was going on, what Antiochus Epiphanes would do reveals that that all of this was really much more than than merely 
uh, earthly political movements or merely earthly battles. Because Antiochus's tyranny didn't just have an earthly significance. His madness wasn't just directed at human beings and their activities. This man was a servant of the evil one. He was in full rebellion against the Lord of hosts. Antiochus' war against the saints was a war that was waged against God himself. The little horn we read grew great. Even to the host of heaven. It threw down some of the heavenly host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled on them. It lifted itself up against the prince of the host, against the Son of God himself. He is the prince of the host. And in taking away the regular burnt offering and the, the place of the sanctuary, he's not just attacking people. He's taking the burnt offerings away from the prince. And he's overthrowing the sanctuary of the prince. And so the events that were taking place had a significance not only on the world stage, but really we could say on the cosmic stage. The great spiritual battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent was being played out once again as the spiritual forces of wickedness were rearing up against and raising themselves up against the very host of heaven, the heavenly armies of the Lord of hosts. So, brothers and sisters, the, the description of Daniel's vision of this spiritual reality, this behind-the-scenes look at this desperate spiritual battle that would be waged in the days of Antiochus IV, is not a reality that's just limited to that time and that place. We need to consider all of the events of history in light of this revelation. Because that battle continues to be waged. That war is still going on. As we've heard before, Satan was defeated on the cross, but he's still waging war. He's still fighting that futile battle against the fifth kingdom, against its king and against its citizens. Now He's going to lose. We know that. And perhaps even he knows it too. But he's not going to go down without a fight. So what does that mean for us today? For the moment, we live in a parliamentary democracy. But we should never imagine that the type of battle that's being described in Daniel 8 is not being played out in our time as well. When government policies trample upon God's law, when laws are enacted that promote evil and outlaw what is good, when religious freedom is taken away, supposedly for the good of the nation, for the sake of tolerance and kindness and social justice, and safety. That very same battle is being fought. When the wisdom of God, when the structures of society that God created for the good of humanity, like the structures of, of marriage and sexual morality, when all of these things are being overturned, this is the earthly outcome of this spiritual battle. 
when people become so blinded that they declare to you that you can no longer say that there are only two sexes, male and female, when you can't counsel people legally who suffer from gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria, when eight-year-old boys can be encouraged to transition using medical means into being girls, this is another face of the spiritual battle. When protecting physical lives becomes so important that it leads to all kinds of decrees and statutes being implemented that forbid certain kinds of interaction which were formerly considered essential, and freedom of worship, even while the unborn are being slaughtered and the elderly and the infirm euthanized, and palliative care facilities that refuse to participate in medically assisted dying are being shut down. This, brothers and sisters, is the result of the Antiochuses of the 21st century lifting themselves up to heaven, attempting to cast down the heavenly host. Brothers and sisters, Daniel's vision reminds us that the spiritual realities of our materialistic world our materialistic world encourages us to forget these spiritual realities. So that's the first thing that we need to get from this vision. The reminder of the very real spiritual forces that are at work in all of the events of history. It's not limited to these events from 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 years ago. We have a tendency to get lulled to sleep about these things because of our supposedly sexual, uh, secular culture. And also because these things don't all happen at once. It's a step-by-step process. It's a little bit here and a little bit there. It's one more law. It's one more policy. It's one more decree. It's one more bill. And so we need a wake-up call. And this vision provides us with that wake-up call. But the second thing that we can learn from this vision is just as important. And it may have been one of the aspects of this vision that was so disturbing to Daniel. It led to him, that, that reaction to this vision, him being overcome and lying ill for days. And that's the part that we read in verse 12. Where we read, And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw it to the ground and it will act and prosper. Those words, because of transgression or because of rebellion, are extremely important. Because once again, what we see here is an infliction, God is inflicting the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28 on Israel because of their rebellion against the God of the covenant. Deuteronomy 28, verses 45 to 48, we read, All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you, They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. 
Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. And the first chapter of the first book of the Maccabees shows in stark detail exactly what happened. And I'd like to read a portion of that chapter right now because it makes very clear how a good number of the Jews actually collaborated with the enemy. And that shows the state of their heart, the rebellion, their rebellion, that led to the desecration of God's temple and the disaster that led and left God's people dangerously close to being completely annihilated and assimilated. It led, it led, it was very dangerously close to the complete disappearance of God's covenant people. In 1 Maccabees, we read this. Antiochus Epiphanes, the son of King Antiochus, began to reign in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. In those days, certain renegades came out from Israel and misled many saying, let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us, for since we separated from them, many disasters have come, come upon us. And this proposal pleased them, and some of the people eagerly went to the king who authorized them to observe the ordinances of the Gentiles. And so they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem, according to Gentile custom, and removed the marks of circumcision and abandoned the holy covenant. They joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. And then the chapter goes on to talk about Antiochus' invasion of Egypt and then his return. It says, He went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light, and all its utensils. Taking them all, he went into his own land. He shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance. Israel mourned deeply in every community. Rulers and elders groaned. Young women and young men became faint. The beauty of the women faded. All of the house of Jacob was clothed with shame. Two years later, the king sent a chief collector of tribute to the cities of Judah, and he came to Jerusalem with a large force. Deceitfully, he spoke peaceable words to them, and they believed him. But he suddenly fell upon the city, dealt it a severe blow, and destroyed many people of Israel. He plundered the city, burned it with fire, and tore down its houses and its surrounding walls. They took captive the women and children and seized the livestock. Then they fortified the city of David with a strong wall and strong towers, and it became their citadel. They stationed there a sinful people, men who were renegades. These strengthened their position. They stored up arms and food and collected, collecting the spoils of Jerusalem, they stored them there and became a great menace. For the citadel became an ambush against the sanctuary, an evil adversary of Israel at all times. On every side of the sanctuary they shed innocent blood. They even defiled the sanctuary. Because of them, the residents of Jerusalem fled. Her sanctuary became desolate like a desert. Her feasts were turned into mourning, her Sabbaths into a reproach, her honor into contempt. Her dishonor now grew as great as her glory. Her exaltation was turned into mourning. 
Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that all should give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. And many, even from Israel, gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. And then Antiochus would go on to make another decree. So I continue the reading from 1 Maccabees. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He appointed inspectors over all the people and commanded the towns of Judah to offer sacrifice. Many of the people, everyone who forsook the law, joined them and they did evil in the land. They drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge that they had. And then the final step, the final step was the worst. Now on the 15th day of Kislev, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns. They offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them, and they hung the infants from around their mother's necks. Now, the author of the books of Maccabees makes a clear distinction between faithful Israel and the traitors that were in her midst. The faithful ones are described as the people or as Israel. The traitors and the collaborators, they are described as renegades. And so there would be a faithful remnant. And ultimately, that remnant would, by God's grace, prevail. But the end of 1 Maccabees makes it very clear that the restoration would not happen without a struggle. And there we read, But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose rather to die than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel. And so, what would happen is that the faithful would suffer horribly because of their refusal to go along with the appeasers and the collaborators, the renegades of Israel who had abandoned the covenant. But, in the midst of that suffering, God would raise up deliverers, members of that faithful remnant. And then after 2,300 evenings and mornings, that sanctuary would finally be restored to its rightful state. Antiochus Epiphanes, or Epimenes, who would destroy many, who would rise up against the prince of princes, he would be broken. But by no human hand, according to Daniel's vision. And the second book of Maccabees records how Antiochus died. And I'll quote from there. And so it came about that he fell out of his chariot as it was rushing along. 
And the fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body. Thus he who only a little while before had thought in his superhuman arrogance that he could command the waves of the sea and had imagined that he could weigh the high mountains in a balance was brought down to earth and carried in a litter making the power of God manifest to all. And so the ungodly man's body swarmed with worms and while he was still living in anguish and pain his flesh rotted away and because of the stench the whole army felt revulsion at his decay. Brothers and sisters, I think you can see now exactly why Daniel's response to this vision was to be be overcome and to lie sick in his bed for days. He had been told that the vision should be sealed up, that it should be kept secure and it should be preserved because it referred to a time in the distant future. But even so, even thinking that that it was going to happen so far in the future, it was still, for Daniel, a horrific vision. Because the vision told him, the sure word of God showed him that there was going to be suffering. And once again, the temple would be defiled. Worship would be stopped. The faithful would be terrorized. And worst of all, absolutely worst of all for Daniel was that all of this would come about yet again because of the unfaithfulness and because of the rebellion of God's own children. Daniel himself was in Babylon because of it. He knew that the exile would come to an end. He knew that the people would return again by God's grace to the promised land. But that return, that rebuilding, that renewal, that wouldn't be the end. Once again, in the distant future, that pattern would be played out yet again. And for someone who, like Daniel, loved the Lord, who loved his people, it was a devastating picture. Even though it wouldn't come to pass for centuries. In one way, it must have been very depressing for Daniel to receive this revelation. And he was appalled by it. And the prayer of chapter 9 is his response, as the Lord willing, we'll see next time. But at the same time, even though he was overcome and appalled and sickened for some days, Daniel returned to his work. He rose and went about doing the king's business. He continued to do the work that God had called him to do. He didn't give up. He didn't think, well, everything's just going to hell anyway. Nothing's ever going to change. He remained faithful to his calling. Because there was still hope. The sanctuary would be restored. God would be with his faithful remnant. He would never abandon his people. But that wouldn't be the final restoration. Each one of these restorations was temporary and would finally be be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so, for us, reading Daniel's visions from the other side of the cross, once again, for us, the final restoration has begun. But we still await its ultimate fulfillment 
when Christ returns and puts an end to this sickening repetition of this ancient pattern of sin and rebellion and destruction that follows and finally brings the ultimate deliverance. And so we await that deliverance with longing, with expectation, with hope. We await that day when everything is finally made right. But as we wait, our waiting must be active waiting. We don't wait passively, and we don't wait in blissful ignorance or naivety. Daniel's vision shows us the reality of what the church faces, the dangers that confront us, the suffering that we may face. It shows us that the danger that leads to destruction does not come from the outside, but it comes from within. It calls us to remain faithful, but it reminds us that that remaining faithful is going to lead to suffering. Now, sure, we can, we can always avoid suffering. It's always possible to avoid suffering. We can simply go with the flow. We can be like these renegades in the days of Antiochus who were all ready to adapt themselves to every part of the Greek culture and Greek religion and thereby avoid the problems that had befallen them previously. But refusing to compromise, refusing to get sucked in, Refusing to conform is the only way to deliverance. So, brothers and sisters, keep your eyes open. Be ready. Stand firm. We know with absolute certainty that deliverance is coming because the vision is true and it shows us beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is in control of history. Despite the sad reality of suffering that we see in this vision, we need to remember that the vision of of chapter 2, the promise that these kingdoms are not going to win, that the fifth kingdom will fill the earth. Knowing this should give us great confidence to do battle, to stand firm in the midst of the fight. Because the king of the kingdom is directing it all until that great and final day. Because the great prince is coming again. And he is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And that kingdom shall have no end. Amen.